let's turn to Genesis chapter 50, and uh, we're going to, we are going to finish our <clears throat> study through the book of Genesis tonight. I don't know if you've ever been on a really long trip, uh, but we have been on a long trip. Uh, I remember one time, I remember two, two trips that stand out. One was, uh, it was me and Little and her parents, and we were driving. Some of you Snowbird people know about a truck called the Big Nasty. Uh, it's an old work truck, and and I went to Little's granddad and got, he's a junk man, and he's like, uh, also some of you might know Fred Sanford is, um, but Little's granddad is like Fred Sanford, and so I figured if I went to his, behind his fence at his barn, I could find a, a camper shell for the truck. So the truck top speed was about 58 miles an hour, and that would give you a shin splint. And we were going to drive to Wisconsin to go see the Joneses. They were living in Wisconsin at the time. We were going to go up there and go hunting and, and, uh, and just visit with them. It was fall of the year. And <clears throat> so now Little's mom, she's teeny, but her dad was anything but teeny. He was a massive human, you know. And so we're going to get four people into this single cab truck that doesn't go very fast. And then we put this, you know, big D, I got this camper shell to go on the back of that thing that he had probably had since the 70s and it wasn't made for that truck and it hung over about that far off the it was you know too long and and I remember uh we were gonna it's about a 20-hour drive and somewhere about halfway up we were around Indianapolis Little's banging on the window because her and her mama were in the back of the truck all right now we had made a, a rack out of plywood and put a mattress on it and made a bed and it was a very comfortable bed. And if you've ever slept in the car, if you ever drive down the road and you see those semis and you're like, and they're parked and their motor's running and you think, that'd be the best sleep. Am I the only person that thinks that? I always see that. And I, it's late at night and I'm trying to make it home and I think, oh man, I bet that guy's snoozing up in there, you know. And so we had that truck fixed up where Little and her mama could sleep and me and her daddy were going to stay awake and drive <clears throat> and they're banging on the on the window, you know. It's probably three in the morning. It had started to freeze in cold rain, and that thing was leaking. And so we drove about I don't know twelve or thirteen hours, four wide in the cab of that truck, you know. And I didn't think we were ever going to get to Wisconsin. I think it's normally a nineteen twenty hour trip, and it took us about four hours longer. And and it, you know, little sat in my lap for a little while. Then her mom sat in my lap for a little while. You know, like she's smaller, and and but we got there, you know, and. Um, if you've ever been on a trip, and I know those of you that have kids, you've had this experience where, I mean, you haven't been gone from the house for 30 minutes, and they're asking, you know, are we almost there? When are we going to be there? And um, thank the Lord, nowadays we have, uh, you know, you play a movie while you're driving down the road if you need to. But the, our journey through Genesis has been a long journey, but it's not been a long journey if you scale it, because we've covered thousands of years of history in one year, essentially, in a year. And for those of you that have come through this journey with us, I hope it's been uh, foundational for how you uh, understand the, the whole of Scripture. I think a lot of people, a lot of interaction I've had and conversations I've had with people, I think a lot of us have been able to connect different pieces and parts to the Bible 
by just coming out of the book of Genesis and realizing this is not just a collection of stories, but this is something literally foundational to the gospel that we look back at, the gospel that has saved us, the missions that we do with missionaries. Some of them are here with us in this season. Thank the Lord. I'm especially thankful for some of those being here. Uh, Kilby and Greg are here. Blue and Britt are here. And, like, the reason we even do missions is rooted in Genesis. The gospel is tethered to Genesis. The work that we've watched God do in the lives of his people has been incredible. It's been an incredible journey. I want to read something to you uh, before we go to our text in Genesis 50 um, and, and, and tying all this together as we look back on the journey. One thing has stood out a lot through this journey, and that is this. Humanity is broken. There have been large stretches and whole sections in which there's literally no hero in the story. It's hard to find the lesser evil in the story, much less the greater good. From the fall to the flood to the Tower of Babel to stories of sexual assault and indecency, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jacob's kids, entire civilizations and societies devoted to evil. It's sometimes hard to find happy moments and peaceful endings to some of the stories. We've had to dig deep and drill deep into some of these stories to find the hope and the light of the gospel shining through. We saw glimpses of heroes and good guys and gals, but more often we saw the weaknesses and failures of those would-be heroes. It was clear that they were more plagued with their own limitations and shortcomings and downfalls than they were gifted with superhero attributes or the strengths to conquer evil. Men we thought we could hang our hopes on exploited prostitutes and stole from innocent people. We saw brothers murder one another, destroy each other's livelihoods, steal birthrights and inheritances whole inheritances and families divided. We even saw adultery committed within the same family, perhaps the highest and ultimate betrayal. There was rape and abuse and abandonment to the point that we cringed when discussing it in a worship service in this setting with God's people on a Sunday. We saw families and civilizations destroyed by the seemingly meaningless selfishness and actions of men, people who seem to be on the right track and have it all together trade everything for a moment of selfish pleasure or possession. And all of this left us at times wondering, where in the story of Genesis, where in that world was there any good? Could anybody be trusted? Could anybody be a hero? Could anyone in the story or would anyone in the story ever emerge and point us to the hope of God and his plans and his purposes? Then when it seemed that we had reached the lowest of lows in the stories of Judah, and Tamar, and Judah, and Joseph, a messianic, Christological figure began to emerge out of the story. And not only did he prove to be a hero and a type of Christ, but he was used by God to change the lives of the people around him. Joseph was not only rejected by his brothers, but he was sold into slavery for meager profit. And his father was told of his fabricated slaying and death. But as we come to the end of our long journey through this story of Genesis, Joseph has not only emerged as an archetypal rescuer and savior, but as we turn to the final text, he will teach us the biggest and greatest theological lesson of the book of Genesis. 
He will teach us in one spoken sentence, a sentence held up by a lifetime of circumstance and action and reaction, a sentence spoken in the midst of yet another false accusation that there is a God and he is sovereign. And as we as New Testament believers now know, looking back from Paul's letter to the Romans, he is working all things together for his glory and our good and for the greater purpose of the gospel. And in that one sentence that we will look at tonight, he gives us all the hope we could ever need to live our lives in a broken and fallen world. Could we use some hope, Red Oak? All of us need more hope. It's Christmas. It's the season where we talk about peace and hope and joy, and many of us are experiencing that, but no doubt there's a lot of us here tonight that are struggling, that are hurting. And the message tonight in the next few minutes is one that, like the Christmas message, that it's going to point us to reaches into the heart of every man and woman and boy and girl and inserts the most powerful of gifts. Namely, the story gives us hope, and the hope rests on a God who is sovereign and gracious. So let's dive into it. So we'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis 50, and we come to the part of the story where uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, has died. We saw that last week, and, uh, and so Jacob has passed and, uh, and we'll pick the story up there in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Some commentators will make a note here that that's only two days shorter than what they uh, mourned Pharaoh. So the passing of the king was the only thing that was a bigger deal than the passing of Jacob. And this is significant for a number of reasons, but I want you to think back when, uh, when Joseph realized, you know, Joseph had come into Egypt as a slave and as a slave over the period of a little over a decade ascends to this really powerful position. And then He's, he's going to bring his family down to live in Egypt, but his family are considered unclean. They're, they're held in contempt by the Egyptians. You remember that? And Joseph goes to Pharaoh, and, and Pharaoh says, well, where do you want me to, you know, wh- where do you want your family to live? And Joseph says, we can live out in this remote outlying region because all of these Egyptian elites, they look down with contempt on my people, and we don't want to do anything but, but just you know, be here and have, have uh, our own livelihood. And so you see this contempt. And now 20 years later, what has changed that you would have a national day of mourning? Here's what's changed. The Egyptians have watched God's people live under the hand of God's favor and blessing and be faithful to the Lord in return. One of the most powerful witnesses that you and I have that like this week, I don't want to diminish the responsibility that we have to proclaim the gospel, but but that's not an everyday, all-day practical thing to do. you got to do your job. you got to go to school. you gotta, you got to live life, right? you got to get the mail. you got to get the groceries. you got to wait two weeks to get your car into a mechanic because everybody's backed up right now, you know? And you gotta, you've got to go to the parade last night, which was awesome. And the Red Oak Youth, y'all were hands down the best, par- the best float in the parade. We had monster trucks. We had elderly people on scooters. We had, 
We have, at one point, I made the joke, I'm wondering if some of these trucks are going to, instead of throw candy, throw cans of dip, you know, like, like welcome to small town USA, you know. Like, we got it. We're going through life and living life, and most of the time, our witness is going to be in the day-to-day meaninglessness of life. 20 years later, a people held in contempt by the Egyptians, and there's a national day of mourning because the patriarch has died. I think it's noteworthy. Verse 5, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. Uh, There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. I think this is important, too. You know, Jacob's life was so, was frustrating. There's times where, you know, we're like, you know, you, you almost feel like he's the enemy. Like, you think back through the deception and the, the, thing, the, the, the times where he should have maybe spoken out and led his family, and then he was silent, and then, it was just moments where frustrated. I think there's a, a very important principle that Jacob's showing us here, and it's this. You're going to start your life in Christ by the power of the gospel, but then you have to live your life by the power of the gospel. When you, when, when you or I, when we step out of day-to-day obedience to the Lord, we're going to mess things up. But what's of critical importance is that we finish with Jesus. Finish your journey well. Jacob finished well. For all that we could say about Jacob, he finished well. They didn't have to try to preach him into heaven at his memorial here. Because he ended his life looking to the Lord. Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father as he's made you swear. So Joseph went up, verse 7. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days, uh, like seven more days now. So he just passed Pharaoh, you know, like they had already done 70 days. Now they're, they stop and they mourn for a week and they establish this place as a memorial because of this great mourning. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field of Machpelah in the east of Mamre, which uh, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So they all go out. They take Jacob to be buried in, in the land of promise which was not a land that they would possess for many centuries yet. Uh, but, but we see even in this last like post-mortem act that Jacob had requested that his sons are now faithful to, to carry out. You see this really cool, it's a powerful principle that we see with people in Scripture. These men were so committed to the plan of God that it mattered to them where their very bones were laid. The, every, listen, Details matter in the, in the life of the believer. Like God's grace is significant in everything that we do. His grace is sufficient. But, but Paul says to the Romans, should we, then, should we then continue in sin so that grace could increase or abound? 
Or he speaks to, should we presume on the kindness of the Lord? There's this New Testament idea that we need to pay attention to the little things because little things are big things in the life of a believer. It mattered to Jacob as he finished strong where his bones would be because that was connected to the promise of God for Jacob and his descendants. Two weeks ago, we saw how even Joseph, and we'll see here in just a few minutes at the end of this text, cared about where his bones would go. Because these, these men were living out in Egypt as Egyptians, but they were not Egyptians. It's this really, like, really, really important biblical principle where the Word of God will say that we are sojourners. We are exiles. This is a home that is not permanent for us. But while we're in this place, we need to flourish and thrive and live out God's purpose and plans for our lives. So, so Joseph is going to take his father's bones where his own bones and remains will one day be taken to the land connected to God's promise. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. There's a couple things. This is a heartbreaking verse because we'll see in a minute, it brings Joseph to tears. Um, What his brothers are living with is what we have the tendency, I think, to live with, and that is continued shame and guilt over decisions that we made a long time ago that have been under the blood of Jesus for a long time. If, if you, a biblical principle that's so important for us is that when you give something over to Jesus and you receive the gift of forgiveness and you receive the gift of reconciliation, we walked through this several weeks ago that what happened with Joseph and his brothers was reconciliation. It wasn't just repentance. It wasn't just forgiveness. They were reconciled. If you've ever had friction in a relationship and then that, you experience reconciliation, that's a powerful, beautiful thing. But as believers, we tend to hang on to our guilt, our shame, and self-condemnation is oftentimes the enemy of the believer's freedom because what, what Jesus has said is this. Like if you go to Romans 3, verse 26, it says, He is just and He has justified your sin." Or he's justified you. In other words, as a righteous and just judge, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, and in return, he has called us just. This is what in the, in the in like if you're new to Christianity or you're exploring this, this is what we call justification. It's the idea that God declares us righteous. You, in other words, you don't become righteous because, and I don't become righteous because I go to church enough or I do enough good stuff or we're declared righteous by Jesus based on the work that Jesus has done. Romans 3.26. And then in Romans 8.1, the scripture says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came and condemned sin. We're celebrating that this season. We celebrate that every day. There's, listen, listen, child of God, believer, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. What you did as a 16-year-old, what you did as a 25-year-old, what you did as a 40-year-old, that abortion, that addiction, that adultery that divorce Jesus doesn't judge you or hold you under that he frees you from that the beauty of grace the power of the gospel 
These poor guys, they still don't get it theologically, man. They, they have been reconciled to God and reconciled to Joseph, and Jacob dies, and they freak out, and they say, oh, man, now he's going to exact revenge. They're probably doing what we have the tendency to do where you impose your own chemistry or makeup onto somebody else. This is probably what they would have done, in other words. This is, psychologists talk about this. It's when you project on someone else your own guilt. I bet Joseph's going to come now and, and get revenge. Because we've seen they have that vein in the way that they operate. Vengeance and, 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 and um, attrition within the ranks. And so Joseph gets this message and it breaks his heart. Hey, are you, our dad, they, and they lie. They lie. Uh, our, listen, Pop said, don't do nothing to us. It's manipulation. It's manipulation. Two things that should not be real, uh, should not, uh, like two characteristics should not exist in the life of a believer. We should not be manipulative and we should not be passive aggressive. Scripture actually addresses this. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Like be men and women of the word and be men and women of integrity and, and recognize that God has a plan and purpose in all things. So verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph. Okay, here's the next strike. They sent a message. What's the modern day equivalent of that? Don't like don't hash out big big things on this with your loved ones or coworkers. Like like they should have gone to him. It's it's very it is it is an assault on his integrity and on 20 years of his kindness and grace to them. They don't even go to him in person. It's 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 an attack on his integrity. Go to, go, go to him and say, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. You know, it's like we've had a couple weeks, several weeks now where these guys, it's like they pulled out of it. Remember Judah? Judah! Like we, we had gone from Judah, you know, like to Judah's willing to die in the place of Benjamin. And then it's like, oh, but it's a good reminder, man. Like it, it's, it, we have to continually keep our eyes on Jesus. And so please, for, they, they're making up this story. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now here's something significant. Remember the dreams? Joseph had dreams as a 17-year-old kid. And he comes to his brothers and he said, I had these dreams that y'all were bowing down before me. And they, they, they lost their minds over that. And it's already been fulfilled once when they came into Egypt 20 years before this. And now here they are bowing down before him again. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Key verses here, 19 and 20 and 21. We're going to come back to that um, in just a moment. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Verse 24 is key. God will visit you 
and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made his sons, or made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. He says that again. We're going to unpack that word in just a minute. Visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Same thing he did with his dad. He's saying, carry my bones out of Egypt. I've spent the majority of my century of life in Egypt, but I'm not Egyptian. Brothers and sisters, we will live our whole physical earthly life in a land that is not our home. This world cannot provide for you what you most deeply need. Until we fix our eyes on an eternal hope, a future hope, an eternal home, we won't understand what our identity is and we'll look for joy and peace and happiness in the things of this earth. Joseph understood there is, a, there is a place that I'm going that is my home, and I'm a sojourner and an exile, just as my father was. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So let's consider a few things here um, in application. One of the big um, <clears throat> theological truths and treatises in Scripture uh, and in the Bible that we talk about is the, the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you feel like you have a pretty good handle on what we're talking about when we say the sovereignty of God. But for many of us, it could be somewhere between scary and confusing. Scary and confusing. A wrongful idea of the sovereignty of God could make us attribute evil to God. Well, God just did that. But God's not capable of evil. So the sovereignty of God is greater than the moment or the circumstance. And so I want to just break this down and unpack three affirmations that Joseph makes right there. If you go back to verses 19 and 20, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want to give you three affirmations of the sovereignty of God that will simplify it, but not like dumbify it. If I, if, if I could make up a word that's dumb. <laughs> um, uh, it'll simplify the idea of the sovereignty of God, but not diminish it. Sometimes when you try to simplify something, you in turn end up diminishing that, that, that thing or that idea or that thought. So the sovereignty of God summed up in these two verses. The first one is this, God is sovereign in his prerogatives. He's sovereign in his prerogatives. What that means is that God has the power and the goodness to forgive and repay sins. This frees us from the need to get revenge or to, to feel. Joseph understood that the sovereignty of God when it comes to God's prerogatives mean that God is always working and God can always be trusted even when it looks like bad things are, are, are winning the day. This is a hard one to wrap our heads around. It's like, this is the idea that in the moment sometimes it feels like good is losing and evil is triumphing. In the moment it feels like the pain is more than you can bear. In the moment it feels like the sun's not going to come out. And this week we can identify with that colloquialism. You know what I mean? Like it's been raining for days. In the moment it doesn't seem like encouraging to just go, well, God is sovereign. Have you ever been in a, in a moment, a point, in a situation where you're like, I don't want to hear that God is sovereign. I know to say that, but what does that mean for me right now in this pain? 
What does that mean for me right now in this conflict and in this suffering? It means this. God has prerogatives. In other words, God is making choices and doing things that in the moment we sometimes don't understand, but here's what we can be confident of. In the midst of his prerogatives, he forgives sinners and redeems and saves lost people. And it takes brokenness to understand that. It takes darkness to need the light. It takes pain to understand the, the, the gravity of healing. And Joseph understood this, this most important of concepts. And he even comforts his brothers with it by going, hey, don't, don't fear. Here's what you guys need to understand. Because they're not there yet. Sometimes this is where dads or, or moms or disciples, this is when we're bringing someone along in their journey. We've got to go, okay, they're not where I'm at yet, so I need to figure out how to phrase this and frame this so that I can bring them deeper into an understanding of who God is. So what Joseph's doing is a kindness to his brothers. He's learned hard lessons in the dungeon and in the pit. I mean, they physically assaulted him and threw him into a pit. Then they sold him into slavery. Then he was a slave. Then he was in a prison, wrongly accused of sexual assault. Then he was this. Then he was that. He's just like, he couldn't catch a break, but he never took his eyes off Jesus. And so he knew in his mind through all of that that God was with him and in his heart that God was with him. And he knew that God was sovereign. But sometimes it takes coming out of it and then looking back to go, okay, I see it. I see it. And some of us have lived long enough that we can look back and see the hand of God's sovereignty and his prerogatives enough that we don't understand what he's doing right now, but I know what he was doing then now that I look back so I've got confidence. And he's bringing his brothers along and he's saying, y'all don't, don't get it yet. Don't fear. Stop living in fear. Stop living in fear. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Christ, through Christ, we overwhelmingly conquer. Fear has no place in the heart of a believer. Perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It is God who drives fear out of our lives. And so he's like, y'all got to stop fearing. God's prerogatives were to take me through this incredibly crazy journey. But in the end, justice is served God is glorified, we receive good out of it. We can know, listen, you can know this. There's coming a day when a righteous judge who sits on a throne and rules victoriously is going to right every wrong. He's going to fix every injustice. He's going to cure everything that is broken. And right now, we've got to live in his prerogatives, trust in that. Some days are harder than others, and some seasons are harder than others. The second affirmation that he gives us is that God is sovereign in his purposes. God works through people who are obedient, but sometimes he works in spite of people who aren't. God works through your obedience, but sometimes he'll work in spite of your disobedience. In other words, you, can't, you cannot thwart the plans of God. You can't mess up God's plans. He's bigger than our ability to mess them up. At one point um, in Scripture, there's this, you see this in, in multiple places, but the one that stands out the most to me, and I hear Zach talk about this a lot, is in Acts 2, 22 through 24, Peter's preaching, and he looks at the people who were responsible for crucifying Jesus, and he says, you crucified Jesus. You're going to be held accountable for that. You crucified Jesus according to the plan of God. We call that a mystery. 
But our minds can't totally comprehend that. This is if we were going to really dive into one of the great attributes of God, we would have to talk about the perplexity of God. There's a mystery. Joseph's taking all that's mysterious and shining a light on everything that we can understand. We can understand that God is sovereign in his purposes. And the third thing, God is sovereign in his plans. He's saying, you sold me into slavery with the most evil intentions. Your plans and your schemes and you worked to bring about your goals and your ends. But in the end, God worked his own plan. Even within the evil of your plan, though God can't do evil or commit sin, but his plan is good even in the midst of your evil. And he brought about life. To those who would have surely died. The gospel is about God bringing life in the midst of death. And so we learn that God is sovereign, and Joseph affirms that God is sovereign in his prerogatives, his purposes, and his plans. If we're going to simplify it, we could just trust God. Even in our most difficult trials and moments, we can trust God. And he says this, and I love this, and this conclusion to this whole story just points us straight to the coming of Jesus. In verse 4, he says, I'm going to die, but God's going to visit you. And then in verse 25, God will surely visit you. Now, he's making a reference, no doubt, to the exodus. And if you're newer to Red Oak, we studied through Exodus, preached through Exodus a few years ago, and we've got all those sermons available. He's pointing to a time when God's people will come out of Egypt and go into the land of promise. But at the time of the birth of Jesus, Jesus had a cousin. Remember this guy? Crazy John. Is that what they call him in The Chosen? Weird John, what do they call him? Creepy John. Big beard, eats bugs, wears itchy clothes, you know preaches hard with fire, you know, and, and, and his dad was this rural country pastor named Zechariah, and he was an older guy. One, one, of, God's, one of God's consistent mind-blowing miracles is to give older people babies, and he does this with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and he comes to her, and he says, you're going to have a baby, and she's like, er, he comes to Zechariah, and he's like, your wife's going to have a baby, and he's like, uh, let me explain biology to you. you know, let me explain how this works. And God's like, okay, this is a miracle. And he, and he takes Zechariah's speech from him. He says, you're going to be not able to talk for the duration of this pregnancy. And then when the baby is born, a few months before Jesus is born, Zechariah gives this incredible prophecy. I want to just read this to you. Remember, Joseph says the Lord will visit his people. Zechariah's prophecy, and, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, this is Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Peter says that there are times where the prophets are speaking and they don't even realize they're being carried by the Holy Spirit. Joseph is pointing to an exodus of his people out of Egypt, but he's pointing to a greater exodus of God's people out of sin. The story of Genesis is the story of the gospel. And Joseph's parting words as an archetypical, prophetic figure of salvation, what we call a type of Christ, pointing us to a greater deliverer, Jesus, says God's going to visit us. And what that visit means is God's going to lead us out of our bondage. He's going to lead us out of our brokenness. He's going to lead us out of the darkness 
That's the gospel. That's the Christmas story. Zechariah confirmed it. And he said this, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In this season, as we finish our study through the book of Genesis, and we all fix our attention on celebrating the coming of our Lord and Savior into the world to visit us, to bring us grace and salvation and hope and peace. Let's worship the Lord in faithfulness. We can know, looking back, what Joseph knew looking forward, that God has come to save us in all the brokenness of the world and even the brokenness of your life. We have a Savior who is sovereign in his prerogatives, his plans, and his purposes And we can trust that he's working all things to bring about his good and his glory. He's working for our good in the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis. And ultimately, the story of Christmas reminds us of this great reality. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take this great reality, that you are sovereign in all things, that in the brokenness of a fallen world that is so demonstrated in the book of Genesis and all of the darkness in a time in history where there was so much confusion, as bad as it is today, as dark as it feels today, as broken as the world seems today, we have the light of Jesus. We have the light of the gospel. We have the hope of the Christmas story and message. We have the hope of the the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. We have the completed word of God that's full of your promises. So we're not stumbling around in the darkness of history and humanity wondering what's going to happen. What those men meant for evil. The tapestry of manipulation and dishonesty and selfishness that they were weaving Joseph's life into. You took that same thread and you meant it for good. You wove it into a greater tapestry the tapestry of redemption, a picture and a story that changed history. And I pray that we would find hope in that. If Joseph points us to Jesus, Jesus draws us to himself. And may we fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.